Mark 10. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Mark chapter 10. I'm going to preach to the children and to the adults in the room this morning. I'm going to look to try to cover a broad audience and keep everybody's attention. And it's great having our children in church. Listen, there are a lot of children doing a lot of things today that are secular and have nothing to do with God. And to have these children up on the platform singing, praying, ushering, and uh, knowing their Bible, it, it really is a joy. And the moms and dads who make that possible, you're doing a good thing by raising your children uh, in church. Mark chapter 10, we'll read from verse 13 down through verse number 16. We'll read these verses responsively. I'll read verses 13 and 15 by myself, and we'll read 14 and 16 together. The Bible says in verse 13, And they brought young children to him, that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought him. Together, verse 14, But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased, and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Verily, uh, verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he brought them up in his arms, but his hands on them, and blessed them. Let's read verse 16 one more time together. Ready? And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. The title of the sermon this morning is this, Finding the Faith. Of a child, finding the faith of a child. Let's pray. Lord, uh, the gospel is such a simple thing to take a part of. And Lord, we live in a world that tries to confuse the gospel message. We live in a day where it's confusing with as many religions are out there and as many voices are being spoken. But Lord, I pray today we would tune out. Everything except you and your word and the truth from your word. Lord, you put the word religion in the Bible four times. And three times you spoke of it in a negative light. Lord, help us to not be concerned with religion, but to be concerned with what's right. I pray, Lord, that for someone here today that you're working on who's not yet put their full childlike faith in you for salvation, today would be that day. And then, Lord, there's a bunch of folks in the room who are already believers, already disciples. But, Lord, maybe lack the ability to share their faith. May the sermon today be simple enough where they can take some of the things that are said and share them with the world around them. Thank you for our children. Thank you for our teenagers. Thank you for their dedication to be in church. Would you protect their hearts? Would you keep them tender? Would you help them to stay in church? And not bolt from church when they turn 18 and have their own freedom. Lord, may they make this faith their own faith. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, we go way back in the beginning of our story to ancient Israel. The Israelites had a common enemy with the Philistines. The Philistines were big and strong. The Philistines had a mighty army, and the Philistines were constantly at war with the Israelites. The Israelites didn't like the Philistines, and the Philistines did not like the Israelites. They had battled many, many, many times. Let's have you sit still, okay? Put that in your lap. Sit back. Can you sit back for me? Thank you very much. All right. Very good. They had battled many, many times, but this time was a little bit different. It was just a little bit different. The uh, Israelites were, were uh, called to battle. And David, uh, who was just a shepherd boy, just a teenage shepherd boy, was sitting in a field tending to his sheep when the draft came. And all of David's brothers were called to go to battle, were called in to the army. And off to battle they went. They put on their armor. And at the time they didn't have guns, but they put on the best weaponry they had with swords and spears and no doubt bows and arrows. And off the war they went. Some time went by and uh, uh, David's father, Jesse, became concerned about his children. Became very concerned about his children. So he took David and he gave him some 
them food and he said, take this to your brothers and find out how the war is going and come back and let me know. And so David shows up uh, to the, the camp of the Israelites where the battle is supposed to be taking place and there's nothing going on. There's a standoff going on. You have the Israelites on one side and the Philistines on the other with a valley in the middle and David arrives and he says to his brothers, here's the food. Dad wants to know how you're doing. He says, what's going on around here? And about that time, the ground began to quake. A giant, nine feet, nine inches tall, many estimate, began to come down into the valley and began to fume and scream and cuss and holler and blaspheme the name of God and the name of the Israelites' God and began to say, send me a man to fight. Goliath was a warrior. He was a big, strong man. As soon as he came down in the valley to fight, demanding for a mano y mano, a one-on-one battle, boy, the Israelites scurried behind the rocks like roaches do when you turn on the lights. They just disappeared. The fear began to get struck in their heart. And David is standing there. David's not afraid. He's just a young lad. He's not afraid. He stands there and watches this big buffoon blasphemes the name of God. And he watches as his brothers run into hiding. He watches as King Saul, who is head and shoulders taller than most men in Israel, went into hiding. And he stands there and he says, hey, you big bully. You say, well, where's that in the Bible? It's in the Hebrew. It's in between the... And someone grabs David and says, David, be quiet. He's going to rip you limb from limb. And David says, who does he think he is to blaspheme the name of my God? You see, David was just a young lad, but David's relationship with God was personal. It was personal. And David was still young enough to be foolish enough to believe that God could do anything. Well, David's brothers began to say, you just need to go home. Well, the truth was David's brothers were being showed up by their little brother. They didn't care for that. You need to go home. You came here to see blood. You came here because you're just a busybody wanting to see and, 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 and spy on war. And you need to go home and tend to the few sheep in the field that dad put you in charge of. Well, David began to walk around the camp. And he began to come up to the different men and say, is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? Hey, that guy is defying our God. Is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? Well, word got back to King Saul that this little teenage boy was going around and talking up a big game. And he said, well, bring him to me. So David was brought in to, uh, to Saul, King Saul's tent. And King Saul, if you know much about him from reading the scripture, he was a little bit of a worrier. He, he, he worried, he wrung his hands over things, and he was probably shivering on his makeshift throne. And, and he said to David, he said, uh, you think you can take on that giant? And he says, I, I, I'll take him down between me and my God. We're going to take him down. And he says, he says, you are but a youth, and Goliath has been a soldier from his youth. You don't stand a chance. And he said, he in essence said, with God, all things are possible. And he said, well, well, where, where is your armor? And he said, sir, I don't need an armor. And he said, you have to understand, I was in the field taking care of my sheep. And this lion came out of nowhere. And with my bare hands, I killed the lion. And then another time a bear came out of, uh, out of the woods and, and grabbed up one of my lambs. And I ran over and I killed the bear. And he said, uh, if God could help me kill those two animals, this giant is nothing. He is nothing. And Saul said, okay, well, here's some armor. Try this on. We have to understand, Saul would have been like my height, and David would have been about like this tall. And so he put the armor on, and it just didn't fit. You know, I picture, I picture, you know, like a little boy putting on a, a, da- a dad suit and coming out with the sleeves way down here, you know, and the pants hanging off of him and holding, him, holding it up by the waist. And he says, I don't think this is going to work. And so he goes and he takes off the armor, and he says, listen, I need my sling. I need my sling. David would go out and he would reach down into the brook and he would pick up five smooth stones. Now, many people have speculated why he picked up five stones. Can I tell you, I don't think it was because David lacked faith. David was going out there to take on a giant. In fact, this giant was so big, he had somebody go out in front of him to protect his lower half. David, in essence, was taking on two people at one time. 
David picked up five stones. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us why, but my speculation is that Goliath had four giant brothers who were also warriors. He was planning on taking out all five of them. But only one came into the valley. And so here we have the standoff. David versus Goliath. Oh boy, everybody knows the story of David versus Goliath. Even non-church-going heathens know the story of David versus Goliath. Don't let the story grow old, because the story is amazing. Goliath looked at David and said, I'm going to feed you to the birds. This is a joke. David looked at Goliath and said, you may be bigger than me, but my God is quite a bit bigger than you. You are going down. David reached into his pouch He put a stone into his sling. He began to whirl that sling around above his head. And David began charging at Goliath, probably making some loud, high-pitched squeal. And he let that rock go, and that thing whirled up, and it caught Goliath right between the eyes, and he knocked him down flat. That little armor bearer that was supposed to be guarding Goliath, I'm sure he just dropped his shield and he took off running. He saw this wild man, who red-headed wild man, who could drop down Goliath. He didn't want to have anything to do with this guy. David would go over and he would stand on Goliath. He didn't have a sword. He was too little for a sword. So he reached into Goliath's sheath and he took out his sword. And um, the next part is uh, kind of gory. He stood on his chest and he took that sword, or maybe stood right next to him and he put it over his head and he chopped off the Goliath's head. Now, they didn't have Instagram back then. But if they did, and I had been David, I would have stood there with my brother and held Goliath's ear by, head by one ear and had him hold it by the other ear and I would have put that on my Instagram page. Okay? Um, how was David able to defeat Goliath? You know how? In one word, he had childlike faith. He had faith. He had faith that the adults just didn't have. He had faith that came natural to him because he walked with God and he believed. You understand that everybody else looked out there and saw a giant almost 10 feet tall. And all they saw was the giant. But David stood there, and he saw the giant, and behind the giant, he imagined a God that was big enough to speak the universe into existence. And David said, it isn't one-on-one, it's one-on-two. One-on-two. And if God is on my side, that giant stands no chance. God would bring about a great victory. Shortly thereafter, Saul would put David in charge of the entire military. And the Bible would say over and over and over again, and I believe it's 1 Samuel 19 or 20, he would say, David behaved himself wisely. That phrase is used over and over and over again. Just a child, a teenager, a 17, 18, 19-year-old man running the entire military operation for King Saul in Israel, one of the greatest countries. That existed. Why? Because David was a man, a child of faith. A child of faith. My friend, you came into the church doors this morning. Let me just say to you that it is not you that is going to get you into heaven. It is going to be the faith of a child within your heart that's going to get you into heaven. Never, ever, ever underestimate what the faith of a child can do. I'm going to give you four points this morning from the story here in Mark chapter 10 where Jesus welcomed the children and sat them on his lap, put his hands on their head and prayed for them. And the lesson he taught the adults by way of the children. Let's jump in this morning. You can fill out the outline there on the back of your bulletin. I would encourage you adults to do that, teenagers to do that. Notice point number one, the desire of the parents. The desire of the parents. Look back at Mark chapter 10 and look at verse number 13. The Bible says, And they brought young children to him, that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought him. Look down at verse number 16. And he, Jesus, took them in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. Now I want to try to, if I can, take you back in time to that day. 
and, and let's say we were living in that time, and you had heard that the Messiah, that Jesus, that God incarnated on earth, was walking the earth, and he had come to your town. You're a parent, and you have children that are 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, and, and, and your children are tender, and they're precious, and the Savior of the world has come to your town. Would you not... Take your children and try to get them to see Jesus, for Jesus to bless them? Oh my, I would do that. Uh, some time ago, a couple of summers ago, I took Matthew and uh, we got in a car, my son Matthew, and we, we rode up to uh, Boston and we went to an Orioles-Red Sox game. Uh, I, my son was born in Baltimore and I lived in Baltimore a good chunk of my life. And so we're big Orioles fans. Yes, we stink, but it's all good. Okay, and uh, the, me and Matthew uh, went up and watched the Orioles play the Red Sox. By the way, that night the Orioles beat the Red Sox 16 to one, 16 to 1, I think it was. It was a whooping, and it was fun to watch. Prior to the game, we got there really early. Prior to the game, I took Matthew to the, the visiting team dugout. And he stood there with a baseball, and he wanted to get it autographed by several of the Oriole baseball players. And can I tell you, there were dozens of children standing there hoping to just get a couple of moments of attention from a star athlete. Now, can I tell you, these guys that play professional baseball, basketball, football, these guys who are movie stars and singing stars, uh, guys and gals that are singing stars, movie stars, can I tell you that uh, they have a lot of fame and people clamor to get them, but they're broken human beings like you and I are. You know, there's really beyond one talent they have, there's nothing really all that special about them. But boy, people clamor to get an autograph. And I, I picture it's girls outside of a boy band and the boys come by and, you know, throw them a hat or throw them a scarf. And oh, they just, they just faint. Ah, he, he, he touched my hand. I can't wash this hand for a month. We're not talking about some pop star. We're not talking about some athlete. We're talking about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As a parent, would you not be right there saying, Jesus, put your hands on the head of my child and pray over them? The desire of the parents. Every one of these children that are sitting here today and some others that are scattered throughout the auditorium, mom and dad, you brought them to church and you bring them to church because although Jesus isn't walking the earth, you have a desire in your heart as a mom and a dad for God to reach down in their heart and their life and do something great in their heart and their life and stir them and draw them to himself so that God can use them to do something wonderful. I look around our country and uh, like you do and... And I see a lot of brokenness. Whichever side of the political aisle you fall on, you have to agree, we're a pretty broken country. We're a pretty divided country. I look at the moral collapse in our country and all of the confusion that that goes about uh, today and the uh, postmodern anarchic type world that we live in and it feels broken and confusing and mom and dad you brought your children to a church where every Sunday they have a pastor who holds the Bible high and says thus saith the Lord and teaches them a moral code on how to live and to that I would say the desire in your heart is right. 1 Samuel chapter 1, if you would turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse number 26. Quickly here we find the story of Hannah. And uh, Hannah was uh, uh, one of two wives to a man named Elkanah. And um, uh, Elkanah had uh, two wives. One of them was named Penina. And Penina had already given Elkanah all kinds of children. But Hannah, God had closed her womb, the Bible says, and she could not have a baby. And and uh, uh, she was very brokenhearted over that. And after a series of events of her fasting and praying and dedicating a future son to the Lord, uh, Eli, the priest, told Hannah, you no doubt will have a baby. And sure enough, uh, uh, she went home and she uh, became pregnant and God gave her a baby boy. And after he was weaned somewhere around the age of three or four, Hannah brought Samuel to the temple to live in the temple and do the work of God. Look down at uh, chapter 1, verse 26 of 1 Samuel. It says, And she said, O my Lord, this is Hannah speaking, As thy soul liveth, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here, 
praying unto the Lord, For this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition which I asked him. Look at verse 28. We see Hannah's desire. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. And he, that would be the boy, Samuel, worshipped the Lord there. Here we see a mom whose desire was for her child to embrace God with all of his heart. For there to be a one-on-one relationship between Samuel and God. And verse 28 says that as she was leaving him in the temple to be taken care of by the high priest in Eli, the Bible says that Samuel worshipped the Lord. Samuel worshipped the Lord. The desire of the parents. Notice number two, the dismissal of the disciples. The dismissal of the disciples. Look back. At uh, Mark chapter 10, and look at verse number 13 with me again. It says, And they, this would be the parents, brought young children to him, that he should touch them, that he should put his hands on them and pray over them and bless them. Look at the rest of the verse. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. His disciples rebuked those that brought him. So I want you to imagine Jesus is over here and maybe he's healing a leper or he's touching the eyes of the blind or he's casting out a demon. And over here you have the disciples of Jesus. They feel as though somehow they are Jesus's security detail. They're supposed to protect him. They're supposed to make sure nobody hurts him. And uh, the mom, moms and dads with their children are pressing in toward Jesus. And the twelve disciples make a wall. And they say, get those kids out of here. He doesn't have time for them. And Jesus is over here doing his work. And he turns around and he sees his disciples. He sees that they're dismissing away the children. He's kicking, they're kicking them out. The dismissal of the disciples. Letter A, notice children are misunderstood. Children are misunderstood. I'm amazed at what comes out of children's mouths. I'm amazed at the perspective they're able to offer. I'm amazed at the profundity that sometimes comes out of their mouth in such a simple format. You know, there is a phrase that I was taught in college. And I don't know where the phrase originated. I've heard it attributed to preachers. I've heard it attributed to Winston Churchill. I don't really know where the phrase originated. But it goes something like this. It goes something like this. I can learn anything from anyone because all men are my teachers. All men are my teachers. Um, do you know that children can teach you too? You know that God sometimes uses children to say some pretty profound things. Now, children, the Bible labels you in Proverbs. Are you looking up here, children? The Bible labels you as simple. Simple. That means you have a simple mind. Now, by and large, you learn from your parents. And you need to listen to your parents. But parents, can I tell you something? It would be wise for you to open up your ears and listen to your children. Listen to your children. Children are often misunderstood. I think about a mom who was on her way to, to work one day, or rather on her way home from work one day, and needed some ingredients from the grocery store in order to get dinner on the table. And she stopped and, and uh, was rushing into the store. On her way in, bumped into a stranger she didn't know. And the man had a bunch of grocery items in his arms, and they fell all over the floor. And she stopped and helped him pick those up and apologized to the man, even though it was more likely his fault. And on into the store she went and got her items and got home. Well, she's in the middle of taking this spaghetti noodles from the the stove over to the sink and she's going to dump them in the strainer and her four-year-old child comes in the room with something in his hand and she doesn't see him as she turns and she just about falls over him and dumps the boiling water all over the floor and she stops and she rebukes the child and, and and yells at the child and get out of here can't you see i'm making dinner and why are you under my feet why are you in my way and she got dinner on the table and got the kids in bed and that night she's laying in bed bed and, and uh, on her pillow before she falls asleep and she begins to remember the man who she had knocked down or, or ran, who had run into her at the grocery store and how he was a total stranger and how she was so kind and polite to this man she'll probably never see again but to her four-year-old son who she loved dearly she was just rude and and unkind and short with and 
She got up and she went into her room, in the little boy's room, 10, 11 o'clock at night now, and she began to just run her fingers through his hair. And the little boy woke up and he looked at mom and he said, Mommy, I love you. And she said, I'm sorry for the way I talked to you earlier today. What is it you were trying to tell me? Now, please understand that whatever this little boy is about to say may be of no importance to the mother. But to that little guy, it was a big deal. He looked up at her and said, I made you a card at school to tell you how much I love you. And I was just trying to give you that card. Oftentimes, children are misunderstood. Let her be noticed, children are marginalized. Children are marginalized. Now, I believe children are marginalized in a lot of ways. There's a story that D.L. Moody, one of uh, America's great preachers, he had preached out on a Sunday morning, and he came home to his home church in Chicago and was uh, preaching at his home church that evening. And he got up in church and he said, we had two and a half people baptized this morning at the church I was at. And someone shot off, an adult shot off the mouth and said, you mean you had two adults baptized and one child? And he said, no, we had two children baptized and one adult. You understand the adults have already lived half their life. The children still have their whole life in front of them. Children still have their whole life in front of them. Never ever underestimate what God can use a child to do. Never ever underestimate that. This week in preparation for this sermon, I pulled up an article online of heroic feats that children have accomplished. I didn't bring it with me to the pulpit, but there were some pretty incredible things. One of the stories I read was about a little boy in Florida who was five years old, and he knew how to swim. And a six-month-old baby crawled over the edge of the pool and fell into the deep end. And this five-year-old jumped in the pool and swam down to the bottom of an eight-foot swimming pool and grabbed the six-month-old baby by its ankle and drug it to the surface of the pool and saved that baby's life. The adults didn't even realize the baby had fallen in. Never ever underestimate what a child can do. Do you understand that in World War II, we sent a bunch of 17 and 18 year old and in some cases 16 year old boys to Normandy Beach to die to protect our freedoms? Do you understand that uh, children today, oftentimes, they sit in their parents' basements and they play video games so they get two, three, four college degrees and they don't know how to manage, they don't know how to do anything, uh, they, they, uh, they, they're, they're marginalized by society, they're told you don't know anything, you just sit there, they're put down. Can I tell you today that God says that children, the Bible teaches that children can and have done some mighty things. Here these disciples are dismissing the children, rebuking the parents. Get those little snotty-nosed kids away from the master. Don't you know he's busy with the adults? Number three. Point number three, we see the the, the displeasure of the master. Look back at verse number 14. Look at verse number 14. It says, Mark chapter 10, verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased. He was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children, permit the little children to come unto me and forbid them not. For of such is the kingdom of God. Notice letter A, the crowd Christ desires. The crowd Christ desires. You understand that children are small and oftentimes they're, well I guess in every case they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable. You know what? Children are dismissed. They're, it's assumed that they, they, they are weak and they don't know much. And Jesus says, wait a minute here. Don't forget that I master in the weak things of the world to confound the strong. The simple things to confound the mighty. I use those, those people that everyone else discounts and throws out. That's the crowd I specialize with. Look at Mark chapter uh, uh, 9 and verse number 33. Just one chapter back to the left there. Mark chapter 9 and verse number 33. The Bible says, And he, speaking of Jesus, came to Capernaum. And being in the house, he asked them, What was it that, uh, that, that, that uh, ye disputed among yourselves by the way? And they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed amongst themselves who should be the greatest. 
And he sat down and called the twelve and said unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, uh, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me, speaking of God. Who is it that Jesus desires? Jesus desires a crowd uh, uh, that is filled with faith and lacks that skepticism, lacks that I can do it by myself attitude. I would just say to the disciples that were pushing the children away, I would just say, hey, don't forget the 12 of you, the world was pushing you away before Jesus came along. Matthew, you were a tax collector. You were a publican. And by the way, none of us like the IRS or the government sticking their hands in our pockets. Uh, that's not anything anybody enjoys. Uh, what are there two things that are certain in life? What are they? Death and taxes, right? Death and taxes. All right. Death. I, I think I like death better than taxes. Um, death and taxes. Nobody likes to see the IRS or, or hear the, the IRS calls you or know you're being in an audit. But please understand that our IRS, while it has its problems and there's probably some level of corruption there, it was far better. It's far better off than these guys back then. These tax collectors basically had no rules. Let's say that you owed $100 to the government uh, in taxes. They would come up and they would take $300 from you. They would put 200 in their pocket and they would turn 100 into the government. Now, how would you like somebody like that knocking on your door? Not 10%. You had to pay 30%. And I'm keeping 20. Boy, tax collectors, they had a lot of money, but they didn't have a lot of friends. Matthew was a tax collector. And nobody wanted to have anything to do with Matthew. And Jesus looked at him and he said, follow me. Jesus walked down to the shore where some fishermen were, were cleaning and fixing their nets. And Jesus looked at these fishermen and he said, follow me. You know what fishermen were? They were on the low end of the job pole. You didn't have to have any education. You didn't have to come from any particular family name to be a fisherman. Jesus said, I want you 12 to look at yourselves. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, of the 11 that remained, uh, the Pharisees would look at them and call them unlearned and ignorant men. Unlearned and ignorant men. These were unlearned and ignorant men. And Jesus said, you're unlearned, you're ignorant, you're the law of society. I want you to come and be my disciples. You are weak. You are vulnerable. I'm going to do something great with you and I'm going to get all the credit. And now you want to turn around and tell the children to leave? Oh boy, there's a big problem with that. The crowd Christ desires. You may be here this morning and you may not think that there's anything all that great about you. You may feel as though that there's, you've disqualified yourself somehow from being a child of God or on your way to heaven. You may feel in some way uh, that um, uh, you've committed some sin and God wants nothing to do with you. You may feel that the world is harsh and cruel out there and if you were just to fall off the edge of the planet, you would hardly be missed and very little would change. But can I tell you today, if that's where you are, If that's who you are, you are right in the wheelhouse of who God wants to love. The crowd Christ desires. Let her be the condemnation Christ shares. The condemnation Christ shares. Go back with me to Mark chapter 9 and look at verse number 42. It says, And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. Wow. Jesus says, you go hurting a little child, a child that has a heart full of faith. It's better that a gigantic rock be put around your neck or tied to your neck. And you and that rock be thrown in the depths of the sea and you drown and die. than for you to go hurt a little one. Boy, don't you mess with children. Don't you mess with children. I'll just say this here. Um... There are two types of people in the Bible that Jesus was very hard on, and only two types of people. I've had people say to me, Pastor Lejeune, I sure wish you'd be meaner in the pulpit. And I'm going to preach with a lot of spirit, and I'm going to preach with a lot of excitement, and I may even get loud sometimes, and and too loud for some of you. But can I tell you something? I don't plan on being mean to anybody except for the people Jesus was mean to. You say, well, who was Jesus mean to? Jesus was mean to hypocrites and Pharisees, and Jesus was mean to those that hurt children. When I say mean, I don't mean like he was nasty, although 
he did call the Pharisees vipers and hypocrites over and over again in Matthew 23. So I guess he was kind of mean there. But you know who he was especially hard on were those that hurt children. You are welcome to come to this church. In fact, everyone is welcome to come to our church. I don't care who you are and what you've done. The only crowd that we really don't want around here are people who want to be Pharisees and hypocrites. If you're that way, you're not welcomed at our church. You go find a church that breeds and is comfortable with Pharisees and hypocrites. The second crowd that we don't want at White Oak Baptist Church are people that hurt children. If you have a problem with children and you have hurt children in your past and still have a desire to do so today, you are not welcomed at White Oak Baptist Church. We want this place to be a place where children are loved and cared for in a way that pleases our Savior and fosters their spiritual growth in a way that pleases the Lord. Jesus wanted nothing to do with anybody that wanted to hurt a child. Can I tell you why? Children are natural at faith. We're going to look at this more in a moment as it involves salvation. But children are filled with faith. How many of you here have ever been the mother, mothered or fathered a child? Would you raise your hand? Remember the day you brought that child home from the hospital? You know what that child was filled with? Faith. Faith in you. Without even knowing it, that child was 100% reliant on you. Especially the mother. Especially the mother. To feed that child and change that child and burp that child and bathe that child. And as that child got older, that faith begins to diminish little by little because they begin to depend on themselves more and on you less. The child's 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old sometimes even 12, 13, 14 years old, they have a heart filled with faith. It's natural there. And when you go and injure a child and take advantage of that trust and take advantage of that faith, you're greatly damaging the faith that God has naturally put in their heart. And God says, if you're going to do that, then it's better you be thrown in the depths of the sea and killed than for you to go messing with a child and traumatizing that child and hurting the faith of a child. The displeasure of the master. Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Number four, and lastly, notice the doorway of salvation. Look back at Mark chapter 10 and verse number 14 with me. Jesus uses these children that the disciples were trying to push away. Jesus says, no, bring them to me. Look, look, look where he takes this. This is powerful. Verse 14, but when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, suffer or permit the little children to come unto me and forbid them not. Now, this next statement is, wow, for of such is the kingdom of God. He clarifies in verse 15. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. He shall not enter therein. You, as an adult or as a child, must come to God as a child in your heart in order to get to heaven. Letter A, notice the skepticism of adults. The skepticism of adults. Turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. For sake of simplicity, I'm trying to do as much as I can to keep it in one book of the Bible this morning. Mark chapter 6. Look with me at verse number 5. You say, well, is God all-powerful? Yes, He's all-powerful. But can I tell you that there is a way to limit an all-powerful God? Look at verse 5. It says, and he could, do the, uh, he, he there, he could there do no mighty work. Say that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. He marveled because of their unbelief. You know, another word for unbelief is just skepticism. They had become skeptical. They were skeptics. Now, where was Jesus in Mark 6? He was back in the town he grew up in, in Nazareth. 
Here he is in Nazareth, and he's uh, walking around. Now he's begun his public ministry. He's going by and seeing the barber that cut his hair, and the clerk at the grocery store, and uh, uh, the person who works the shop uh, on the side of the road at the market. He's going from place to place, and he's trying to do something great among them, and they want nothing to do with it because they did not believe he was who he said he was. Can I tell you something about most adults, including myself? We are skeptical. We are skeptical. I remember when I was 18, 19 years old, I would make some statement. And my dad would say, wow, you're way too skeptical for your age. You're not supposed to be that skeptical until you're like 50 or 60. Okay? But I wasn't always skeptical as a young man. I remember I was working a job in college and I was uh, making, uh, it was hard labor. It was really, it was, it was, uh, it was, I was driving a forklift on a truck dock and it was out in the cold winter of Chicago and it was just about as cold on the truck dock as it was outside and you get, get in the single digits or sometimes even below zero and out there working that job and, and I, I saw an ad on my phone online and it said something about If you'll just mail these letters out, we'll pay you X amount per letter. We'll provide the envelopes, we'll provide the letters, and we'll provide the stamps. Just put your email address right here. And I thought, wow, I could do 20, 30 envelopes, you know, in in a short amount of time. And I I could rake in big bucks, big bucks. And I called my mom, and I said to my mom, I said, I found... The key to paying my school bill and becoming rich. And she said, I don't know. I don't know. It sounds fishy. I said, no, mom. I checked it out. It's, I hadn't checked it out. I checked it out. This is the real deal. I don't know. Well, you know what? I put my email address in there and within 24 hours, I had so much spam hitting my inbox. I had to shut that account down. You know what I've learned since then? I've learned to be skeptical. I've learned to be skeptical. I've shared this before, but right after we got married, uh, we got a call. We got a call about a Disney cruise. You have been selected. And I thought, oh boy! Oh boy! I've won! I've hit it big! You know, now when I get those calls, I hang up you know, three or four words in. Life makes us skeptical. Finish this phrase with me. If it's too good to be true, it's... It's too good to be true, isn't it? Probably too good to be true. You know where that phrase comes from? It comes from a skeptic. It comes from a skeptic. Somebody comes to church. Please hear me. Somebody comes to church and Pastor Lejeune gets up and says... Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's a free gift. Open up your heart and believe in Jesus and you can go to heaven. And you sit there in the pew and you go, hmm. If it's too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. And you walk out the door just as lost, hellbound as you were when you walked in. You know why? Because you're a skeptic. Because you're a skeptic. The truth is this. God loves you so much that he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sins. Salvation is so simple. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You say it's too simple to be true. It's too good to be true that God would kill his son on a cross for my sins and pay for my eternal damnation to lift the condemnation off of me. All I have to do is just believe it can't be that easy, Pastor Lejeune. Yes, it is. Stop being a skeptic. The skepticism of of, of adults We become skeptical at anything and everything. And because of that, many people will fall right into hell. Letter B, notice the false security of most. The false security of most. Look back at Mark chapter 10 and look at verse number 23. The Bible says, And Jesus looked round about and said unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? 
And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, How then can be saved? Look at verse 27. And Jesus looking upon them saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. You know what a lot of people are putting their security in? They're putting their security in themselves. And they're putting security in their riches. Here is the false sense of security people have. Listen up right here. I'm almost done. Listen to me. They believe that because they've been successful at a career, and they've been successful in a bank account, and they've been successful climbing the corporate ladder, and they've been successful in buying a house, and in buying a nice car, and in getting nice clothes, and getting their children plugged into different extracurricular activities, and their kids are making decent grades, and for the most part they're holding it all together. Yeah, there's a problem here, and there's a problem there, but boy, they have, they have done well at life. Can I tell you what they're rich in? They're rich in pride. To get back to last week's sermon, they're rich in pride, and because of that, they have this false security that because I have figured out life on this side of eternity, that means somehow they have figured out life on the other side of eternity. Can I tell you that being rich, whether that's monetarily, whether that's socially, whether that's emotionally, uh, however you want to put it, if you are poor spiritually, meaning you've not put your faith and trust in Christ and Jesus, then my friend, ultimately you're poor. Ultimately, you're poor. There's the story in Luke chapter 16, I believe it is, where uh, there's a rich man. And uh, he's got all kinds of money, he's got all kinds of food, and there's another man named Lazarus. And Lazarus is so poor, he sits under the rich man's table, and the rich man eats like a slob, and crumbs fall off the table, and Lazarus scrounges up the crumbs and puts them in his mouth. And Lazarus is nothing more than a mascot to be laughed at by this rich man. Well, the one thing that Lazarus had that the rich man didn't have is Lazarus had believed in Jesus. And he had put his faith, his childlike trust in Christ to take away his sins and give him the gift of eternal life. And the Bible says that both of these men died. Lazarus was carried away into Abraham's bosom. That was a holding place prior to heaven being ready. And and the rich man was carried into hell. And Abraham tells the rich man, he says, while you had it good on earth, Lazarus had it poor. Now Lazarus has it good and you have it poor. Why did the rich man go to hell and Lazarus end up in heaven? Because Lazarus believed in Jesus and the rich man trusted in his riches. We live in one of the richest countries that's ever existed on planet earth. Per capita, we have more money, we have more things, more luxuries, more comfort creatures, and we go through life feeling comfortable without the realization that right over the edge of all of this comfort in life, right over the edge, right over the cliff of death, is a pit called hell where you will end up if you don't turn to Jesus and put your full faith in Him. My friend, don't let that be a rude awakening that you close your eyes in death and wake up in hell. Let her see, notice, the simplicity of childlike faith. The simplicity of childlike faith. Look back at verse number 15. Mark chapter 10 verse 15. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. You know what, if I were to take my son and my daughter when we got home today and I were to kick them out of the house and say, I'm not going to take care of you anymore. Or I were just to drive them to the middle of a city they did not know in another part of the country. Kick them out of the car and drive away. And I were to say, you need to figure out how to find your own shelter and your own food. Can I tell you, they'd be very lost. They'd be very lost. You know what my children are? They're dependent on my wife and I to make sure their mouth is fed. And they have a pillow to put their head on. The bills are paid. You know what there is? There's an innocent trust there. There's an innocent trust there. Yasiel, come here, buddy. Come here real quick. I need you, need your help. Let me have your jacket. Come here. Okay? I'm going to put you right here. Stand up there. Okay? You good? Okay, jump. Come here, jump. Jump. 
How many of you adults would have jumped? Yasiel is little, he is faith. The faith in him to jump is the same faith you need to jump in the arms of Jesus. How about it today? Are you... Put your hand down for me. Put your hand down. Please listen. Are you going to jump in the arms of Jesus and trust him for your eternity? Let's have our heads about nice clothes this morning. The simplicity. It's simple. It's so simple. God is not looking for you to accomplish some feat to get into heaven. He's looking for you to set aside your skepticism, to set aside your own good works. He's just looking for you to believe on Him. That's it. You say, Pastor Lejeune, it cannot be that simple. It is that simple. Romans chapter 10 and verse number 13 says this. Listen closely. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I want you to imagine that you are out with my family. We're out on Long Island Sound. And I fall into the water. And I don't know how to swim. And I call out to you and I say, throw me a a life raft and save me. What do I want you to save me from? I want you to save me from drowning. Who am I calling on? I'm calling on you. Why am I calling on you? Because I'm desperate. Who is my faith in? It's not in me. I can't swim. It's in you. My friend, you are drowning in an ocean of your own sin. The only one qualified to pull you out of that is Jesus. He's already suffered for your sin on the cross. Now, you can tread water for a little while. You you can go through life and you can manage for a little bit. But one day, if you don't call on Jesus with a heart full of faith and ask him to pull you out of your own sin and rescue you to take you to heaven, you will drown in that sin. Don't let your skepticism of the lifeguard, Jesus, don't let your pride in your own heart keep you out of heaven. Call on his name right now. And just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm going to die of my sin. I need you to rescue me. I need you to save me. If you've not done that, why not do it right now? Right where you are, let me help you pray a prayer. Put your faith in Jesus. You can call on his name. You can believe on Jesus to be your lifeguard. To throw you the life raft of his salvation. You can ask him to take away your sin. Give you a home in heaven. Right where you're at. With your head bowed and eye closed, right there in the pew, if you've not yet done this, and by the way, this is a one-time transaction, but if you've not yet done this, will you just repeat this prayer after me? And before we pray, the prayer, the words of the prayer are not magical. God is looking for the faith that's in your heart. Just say this from your heart to the Lord. Just say, Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner, and I know that my sin is wrong. I know that I deserve to go to hell for my sin. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me. Will you come into my life? Will you take my sin? Will you give me a home in heaven? Jesus, I believe in you and you alone as my way to heaven. In Jesus' name.